So I don't know what your Halloween was like, but mine was momentous. And it's very interesting because I don't even really like Halloween. I mean, I don't hate it. I'm not down on it. You know, I'm none of that. It's just not my thing. I don't like look forward to it. But yesterday morning, there was a, a consecration of a new bishop uh, just over at uh, St. Andrew's Presbyterian in Newport Beach. And I had to be there. And I was all dressed up. If you have these things on your seats, I was all dressed up in all my fancy bishop robes and stuff. If you've, you've ever seen it, probably if you're on Facebook with my wife, Debbie, you've seen me in my, my fancy robes. But they're, they're there for you. And so yesterday morning as I was getting dressed and <clears throat> putting on my collar, for the third time in my life I'd ever put on a collar. Uh, I wore a collar at my uh, ordination as a priest. I wore a collar at my consecration as a bishop. And I wore a collar yesterday. So I'm putting it on. And I say to Debbie, I say, how ironic that I'm, oh, what made yesterday special is that I was, I see, I'd only worn my collar before in church services. But yesterday I had a lunch appointment after this uh, um, consecration. And so I realized I was going to be wearing my collar out in public for the first time. And so I said to Debbie, how amazing, how ironic that on Halloween, I'm going to be wearing my, co- my collar out in public. I said, I said, I guess it'll be okay if I feel really awkward. I can just say it's a costume, right? So look, the guys who are with me are here in this room this morning, all three of them. So they can tell you this is the truth. So we, we go out to have this sort of business lunch afterwards. We go to this little Mexican restaurant in Newport Beach at PCH. And we walk in the door, three of us in collars, the other one looking very sharp. And, uh, and of course, my shirt's, you know, purple because I'm a bishop. So I got a purple shirt, these two black shirts. Everybody's looking nice. Ellis is in a nice suit. And I'm not kidding. We walk in the door and it's kind of a bar, restaurant. The whole place looks at us. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> we go sit down at the table and probably because I'm wearing the purple shirt, this waitress who's dressed up as um, Wonder Woman, <laughs> she comes up and goes, are you a real priest? So there you go. It's just, just, it's just kind of crazy. But that was my Halloween. I don't know what yours was like. Well, uh, I don't think is I don't know if there's a sermon uh, title in your uh, in your bulletin or not. But I want to do this morning is try to take serious these words from Jesus um, about what is most important. Um, to try to think through how they impact what we think of as church or religion. Because I say this very carefully, but but I really mean it, but it's a little bit provocative, so I think I'm going to have to make sure you all understand what I mean by it. And that's this, that the church activities left to themselves or on their own are not normally difference-making. I know that's a little provocative, so let me say what I mean. But, but you'll all get it as soon as I say it. I mean, how many of you had quiet time in the morning and you go out your door and someone cuts you off at the intersection and you cuss them out? Well, that's what I mean about not being difference-making. Uh, they, they, they lack, for most of us, uh, the ability to actually transform to reorient our lives in any sort of fundamental way. Now, obviously, I'm not down on those things. I do them all. I mean, there's hardly a sort of a Christian practice that, that I've not practiced or, or don't practice. What I'm trying to say is we need something, though, that goes beyond mere activities, that we find a way to reorder and reorient our life, not just 
adding or doing things. I'm, uh, well, think of it this way. You could be sitting in your car and you can sort of tug on the steering wheel or you can tap on the brakes or you can check the parking brake or you can turn the lights on and off. You can be doing lots of activity and really not be getting anywhere. And that's what I've seen. I, I'm, again, I, I've been at this a long time. And over decades of being a pastor, I have known many, many people who engage in all kinds of activities. But their regular sort of basic life is left untouched. Sort of like just tugging on the steering wheel of a car and stuff. They don't really ever get anywhere. So I want us to just think for a few minutes this morning how we can take this idea from Jesus. Um, that he, of course, was, you know, quoting the passage in Deuteronomy that this is what it's really all about. And again, I just want you to stop and think about that for a minute. I mean, I want us to really think this morning, how can we take Jesus seriously at this point? Like, can we attribute to him that this is actually intelligent? Or is this sort of a mystical saying? Um, Is it for the super spiritual? Or is this actually fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. And so let's see if we can take him serious. Well, here's the background to the gospel passage. You know the Ten Commandments, right? Well, over a long period of time, up to ancient, um, you know, first century Palestine, the kind of Judaism that was around Herod's temple, the Ten Commandments had been made into 613 statutes. Did you catch that? 613 statutes. And this is what underlies a lot of what you read in the New Testament when Jesus says, you guys are weird. Like, you won't walk more than three-eighths of a tenth, three-eighths of a mile on the Sabbath because the, the, the statutes, you know, the, the commandment said, have a Sabbath. And so then they broke that down into all these statutes. And one of them said, well, you can't walk more than three-eighths of a mile. And so they had all these little laws. And Jesus says, you guys pay attention to those but you miss the whole big thing. And so that's the background to this, to this text. And I think you say, by the way, the same is true today. I mean, I can't be the only one in this room who occasionally feels frustrated by all kinds of religious leaders and special interest groups telling us what to care about. And you're like, well, you're really a real Christian if you care about creation. Or you're really a real Christian if you care about human sexuality or a certain political bent, or a certain theological point of view. And then, of course, those things all boil down into, they're they're like the Ten Commandments. They boil down to all these little things, and I can't be the only one left wondering, what is it that I'm supposed to do? I mean, what, what actually makes all this make sense of something? And so this is why, in my again, in my experience, I have seen so many people over the last decade just throw their hands up in the air and walk away. When I was a young evangelical, we used to say, oh, it's uh, people are leaving all the mainline churches and they're going to churches like Calvary Chapel and Rock Harbor and the Vineyard and Saddleback and Mariners and whatever. And they're leaving all these mainline churches and they're going there. Well, you want to know the dirty little secret of the church today? As somebody who studies the sociology of religion for business, I mean, it's part of my life as a teacher. The dirty little secret of the church today is, is that people are leaving evangelical churches by the droves. The church in, a, in America that's losing members the very fastest right now, and I'm not picking on them, it's just true as the Southern Baptist Convention. As people are just sort of getting fed up with it, as they were in Jesus' day. 
This is why Jesus one day said to the Pharisees, I'm paraphrasing, but you losers. You, you heap these huge burdens on people's shoulders and you won't lift a finger to help them. And that's the way people are feeling, just confused and burdened and they're not really changing. Nothing's sort of fundamentally reordering their lives. And, and they go to churches that are the latest and the greatest and the coolest and the hippest and all of that. And they don't find any genuine change coming. And they throw their hands up in the air and just say, I don't know what to do. So let's see if we can uh, get Jesus to help us fix that. All right. So this is a story about a scribe, right, who comes to Jesus. and They have this conversation. Well, what's a scribe? A scribe is, a, think of a scribe like an attorney. Um, they were like the lawyers of the day who interpreted all these statutes for the people. And they said, well, this is how this one is congruent with the Ten Commandments and how we ought to apply it, or here's one that's not. And they were sort of the ones who had the decisive voice about what to do with all these statutes. So when this scribe, who was sincere, I believe, honest and unafraid, when he comes to Jesus with this curious but I think genuine question of which of all these 613 statutes are the most important. Now, that's a great focusing, clarifying, potentially reoriented question. Have you ever seen this question? If you woke up one night in the middle of the night and God forbid your house was burning down, what would you take out of it? Have you seen that kind of question before? And of course, none of no, but I mean, we can guess that you might take family portraits. You might have a box somewhere that's got your passports and important papers in it. Maybe you grab your laptop these days or your cell phone or your Blackberry. God knows you grab your Blackberry, right? Whatever else, you know, you're, you, grab, you grab your PDA and you run out of the house. Well, see, this is one of those kinds of questions. When this honest, sincere, seeking scribe says to Jesus, what do I grab out of the burning down house of religion if I have to? If I've got to just grab a couple of things, what are the things that are most important? And Jesus first references what's known as the Shema. That's what we read in Deuteronomy. The Shema was um, to the people of Israel like the creed that we'll read here in a moment. It was like a very sort of um, uh, um, slogan kind of, uh, almost soundbite kind of thing that reminded them of their whole history. And so it's, it's not that you could reduce what it meant to be uh, the people of God to the Shema, but the Shema was to remind them of everything, that there's one God, not the pluralistic gods around them, and that there was one way that you were to be uh, relating to God. So Jesus says, here are the two most important things. These are the things that actually matter the most. When the house of religion is on fire, here's the two things that you should grab. And he says, here's the first one, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is to say with your whole entire self. This, by the way, is why compartmentalizing your life doesn't work. This is why saying, I'm a Christian, I worship God, but I'll do what I want with my sexuality does not work. Or... I, you know, I love God, but if I have to cheat a little bit at work, then, you know, you just got to do what you got to do because it is what it is, whatever, right? This is why that kind of compartmentalization doesn't work because it doesn't fit what's crucial. What's crucial is to love God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength, and your whole entire self. 
Jesus, of course, the one saying that, is the one who perfectly lived out the Shema, who was Israel and as God intended, who was Adam and Eve as God intended, and who was the church as God intended. Is this where I break out in a dance? Something's coming over. Thank you. No worries. Welcome to Rock Harbor Youth. We're multitaskers around here. You can do two things at once. Listen to Todd and be in Rock Harbor Youth. Um, So again, trying to take Jesus uh, serious on this. The one who is saying this is what you ought to do is the one who was in fact doing it. Now, this is crucial because for most of us in the kind of religious background that we come out of, Jesus is the person who died on the cross. And we are very clear about that. And we're very clear about what that means. And, and the evangelical world that most of us come out of have very clear theories of the atonement and, and what happened on the cross and how it is that it saves us and all that. But for most of us evangelicals, we completely lost Jesus' as teacher. It wasn't valued. But not for the scribe. This scribe is precisely asking to be taught about life. How does life work? Not just, how is it that you made Abraham? I mean, that's an interesting question for the scribe. How is it that you actually allowed Abraham and Sarah to have a baby and you, you populated us and you are making us into this great nation? That's an interesting theoretical and theological question. But it was not the point to this scribe. And Christianity does not go nearly far enough when it has merely an adequate theory of atonement. What we need is, a, is, is something that can actually reorient and reorganize our whole lives. And Jesus is not only saying this is what it is, but, it, it, but his manner of life, his teachings, the things he did, his, his words and works are the example of what this means. So now... Jesus starts with the Shema, but then he links to it this second thing of go love your neighbor as yourself. Now, interesting that he's quoting there from Leviticus, but but he's changing it. The Leviticus passage says, and love your sons and the sons of your sons, because it was a way of teaching Israel to love each other. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what happens at another time in Jesus's career? Jesus says, love you. Neighbor is yourself. And another time, a Pharisee came up to Jesus and said, what? Lord, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And I've referenced this once before, but you probably all weren't here. So let me just say again. The story of the Good Samaritan is not a nice little moralism about be kind to people. The parable of the Good Samaritan is actually a very powerful, provocative statement where Jesus is saying to the Jewish people, loving your neighbor trumps your religion. Because here's what happened. That guy's beaten up. He's left on the side of the road as what? Remember what the text said? As dead. Everybody thought he was dead. Well, a priest and a Levite who walk by a corpse, they can't go touch a corpse. It would make them unclean. 
And so they crossed the street to go to the other side. But this despised Samaritan, half Jewish, half Gentile, who the Jews just hated, he goes over and he helps the man who's left half dead. And the point of that parable is you are failing to be the people of God because you're failing to love your neighbor as yourself. You're failing to see that your religion is essentially for the sake of others. And Jesus is teaching the Jewish people. He's not mad at them. He's not down on them. He's not putting them down. He's trying to instruct them. And the instruction is love for neighbor trumps religion. Love for neighbor trumps um, denominations. Love for neighbor trumps history. It it trumps everything because according to Jesus, if we're going to take him serious, there's only a couple things really profound about what we're doing. Loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind and our neighbor as ourselves. Well, what does that mean, as ourselves? It means in the same way that you respect yourself and you want to be respected, in the same way that you take yourself serious and you want others to take you serious, this is what Jesus means, that you, to love simply means to intend or to will the good of another. So what did the Samaritan do? He bound up his wounds. Why? That was good for him. It was good for that guy laying there beaten to death that guy needed a place to recover so he takes him to an inn and he pays for him to have a place to recover see that is that that is simply what love is it doesn't even really so much matter what that guy was feeling he may have been afraid i am i don't know about you but i get a sort of afraid i feel impotent that's a better word i feel impotent in the face of really deep profound brokenness it scares me it seems like a black hole i don't know what to do about it but see, if I, can, if I can realize that love for neighbor trumps my feelings, maybe this guy was afraid. Maybe he thought, dang, this is my last 20 bucks. And if I give it to the innkeeper, I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe he was feeling insecure. It doesn't really matter what the feelings were associated. Jesus was saying love for neighbor trumps all of that. Well, when you know, he, Jesus answers and the scribe says, man, Lord, I, yeah, that's really right. Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, that's an interesting statement. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Well, first, what's the kingdom of God? The, the kingdom of God is simply the rule and reign of God. You might think of it as the action of God or the spaces or places in which what God wants done is done. Um, the kingdom is not a, like a geographic thing, like the kingdom of Tustin. It's, it's, a, it's an activity. It's, it's the places where God expresses himself. This is why he taught us, when you pray, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He was basically saying, pray that what God wants done will be done in your midst. And so when, when Jesus hears that this guy um, says, you know, a, a good answer, he says to him, well, you're not far from the kingdom. Well, what is that? I think it's a couple of things. I think it's a compliment and a warning. Because if you're not far from, you're not what? You're not in. You're close, but you're not in. And I think this is a compliment because I think the scribe was sincere and honest and fearless in asking this question. I mean, think about it. This is sort of like a prosecuting attorney, you know, at the courthouse in Santa Ana asking somebody, you know, what's the right statute for drunk driving? And so, I mean, this guy was willing to sort of, you know, be, to acknowledge, I'm a scribe and I don't know which of these is the most important of all this big, long list of statutes. So he was humble, sincere, honest, willing to be 
abraded, so to speak, by Jesus, if that had to be. And so there's a compliment in that, but I think also a warning that's designed to produce reflection. And this is what I want you to reflect on this morning. What do you take if all of your approach to religion and spirituality were burning down this morning? What do you grab and take? And this is, this is the kind of reflection. It's a refocusing question. It's a reorienting question that Jesus is asking this guy. Because he was close but not in. I mean, this was a long time ago, but hopefully some of you will remember. Remember when, um, gosh, this might have been 80s. I'm sorry. Some of you were hardly born. But remember when, remember when Evil Knievel was popular? Now, you know, the daredevil guy. Remember one time he had this jet motorcycle and he was going to try to go over the Grand Canyon? And remember, it, this is an amazing motorcycle. And he takes off like a rocket. And you think, oh, my gosh. And remember, if I remember right, he doesn't even get halfway. And he has to pull the you know, ripcord on his parachute and sort of float ingloriously to the bottom. Because while he was close, he wasn't there. And that's what Jesus wants this person to see. And, oh, by the way, it's not a bad question for us. Like, can we feel the rhythms, the routines, the grace, the goodness, the power, the authority of God's kingdom in our daily lives? Are we close but not in? Is it, is it overflowing to others for the good of others? Is there a genuine love for others happening is the thing that I think God would want us to think about today because what this question is designed to do is to help people move from a concept of loving God and loving others to concrete actions and attitudes. Because if you ask yourself, well, what would make this guy be over the line and not just near to the kingdom of God but in it would be the actions associated with what he mentally affirmed. Do I need to say that again? What would put him over the line and in the kingdom of God would be actions that are congruent with the attitudes that he affirmed. So, yes, Lord, to love God and your neighbor is the right thing. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. What would put him in? A life that showed that what he said he believed was true, he really believed. Because, and then we're going to be done. Belief in the New Testament has very little to do with mental work or cognition. It includes it, but it has very little to do with it. Actually, belief in the New Testament, um, am I the only one who in the 70s had an Amplified Bible? Did some of you ever have Amplified Bibles? You know, it's the kind you could turn up and it got really loud. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, In the Amplified Bible, uh, the way it always translated uh, faith or belief was to, some of you will know it as soon as I say it, Trust in, rely on, cling to. That's the way it always amplified the word belief. Trust in, rely on, cling to. Belief in the New Testament means this. To place, to act as if, to place your confidence in something so that you act as if you believe it's true. That's what belief means. It means to place your confidence such that you act as if you believe it's true. So in this case, how does one act if you believed that Christianity boils down to loving God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole self, and your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, what if we could just sort of tear, everybody go with me here, we could just sort of tear the roof off the building here, and because we're just a few hundred feet from John Wayne, you know, we can see planes taking off. And I say to you, hey, do you believe in flying? You know, I'll say, well, yeah, of course. 
dummy, look, there's a plane taking off right there. Of course we believe in flying. And you believe that planes stay in the air for the most part, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe. But I know that even in a room this size, there are some people who are afraid of flying. And you won't fly. You believe in planes. You believe they stay in the air. But if, we, if I were to say, okay, you know, let's go around the runway and go over and, you know, check in, go through security lines, you know, go through the gate, start walking down the jetway. Some of you who are afraid of flying, as soon as we got in that jetway, you'd be panicking. But then we get down to the end of the jetway and, you know, little rubber bumper. I guess if you don't fly, you wouldn't know. So let me tell you, because I fly almost every day. There's a there's a, a little rubber bumper at the end of the jetway so that, you know, if it hits the plane, it doesn't hurt the plane. And there's always a little gap, only usually half inch, three quarters of an inch, a little gap there. And that's where you are not far from the plane. <laughs> You're just there. You are not far from the kingdom of flying. And that's where, that's, that's where that scribe was. But Jesus is saying, what, what it means to have this really orient your life is to act as if you believe planes fly and to take that last step and, and put your life into a whole new reality, which is the kingdom of God. So Jesus says to the scribe, yeah, yeah, you're getting it. You're not far from the kingdom. But what will put you in and over the line is that you act as if these things are true. And in my simple little innocent heart, that's what this is all about. Somebody asked me on an elevator in an airplane, passing me on the street, Todd, why are you starting a new church? It would be that we could somehow take these ancient spiritual practices and genuinely engage with them such that they reoriented our whole life around loving God with our whole heart, our whole mind, all of our strength, all of our social self, and that that would somehow all spill over for the good of others and what the Bible calls love for me. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.